So at this point, I think we have to believe this virus is respiratory. Maybe fomities too. What's that? Fomities? Uh, it refers to the transmission from surfaces. The average person touches their face two or 3,000 times a day. Two or 3,000 times a day? Three to five times every waking minute. In between, we're touching doors, water fountains, elevator buttons, and each other. Those things become fomities. Is this something we want to release to the press? Respiratory and fomities? How's the public going to react to that? Well, it's hard to say. Plastic shark in a movie will keep you from getting into the ocean, but a warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes won't stop you from buying it. Oh, we're going to need to walk government through this before we start to freak everybody out. I mean, we, we can't tell people right now what they should be afraid of. We tried that with swine flu, and all we did was get healthy people scared. It's the biggest shopping weekend of the year. I think we need to consider closing schools down. And who stays at home with the kids? Who, who works in stores, government workers, people who work in hospitals? When will we know what this is? What causes it? What cures it? Things to keep people calm. What we need to determine is this. For every person who gets sick, how many other people are they likely to infect? So for the seasonal flu, that's usually about one. Smallpox, on the other hand, it's over three. Now, before we had a vaccine, polio spread at a rate of between four and six. Any ideas what? That might be for this. How fast it multiplies depends on a variety of factors. The incubation period, how long a person is contagious. Sometimes people can be contagious without even having symptoms. You need to know that too. And we need to know how big the population of people susceptible to the virus might be. So far, that appears to be everyone with hands, a mouth and a nose. Welcome to It's About Nothing. Welcome back, uh, Ken, to 2021. You survived uh, without contracting um, COVID-19. I, I, can, I can see that. I did. I did. Well done. Yes. Quite the achievement. <laughs> it is an achievement. I think that's the thing with 2020, just to survive it, to get through it was an achievement. So uh, that script was uh, not taken from a leaked uh, tape from a government meeting last year. It was actually from a 2011 film, Contagion. Yeah, yeah, I'm still getting my head around fomities. That's right. Well, we were both going to say fomites <laughs> because it's spelt F-O-M-I-T-S. Sorry, I-T-E-S. Yes, yes. So we could quite easily have aggravated a, um, a very niche audience uh, of, of, of scientists or, or fans of contagion. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think it's one of those US English versus UK English pronunciation things. Well, it could be. Um, that was actually, um, at least the, the script that I was reading from Kate was Kate Winslet, yeah. um, who's, you know, British. So you might give her the benefit of the doubt that she <laughs> is, is, is pronouncing it correctly. But then again, Fomites is, wouldn't be, I don't think you would rush to use that as your go-to pronunciation, would you? You, would not, you know, you wouldn't look at that word and oh. say that's how it's, it's said. Fomites, you know, like termites. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's, a, that's a good question. Is it would we rather have COVID 19 everywhere or just termites everywhere? What would happen if there were just termites in every building? Could that oh, be almost as bad? I'm sitting at a, a desk made of wood, so I suppose there are termites <laughs> everywhere. 
you know, and like most people's houses, I, you know, it's not a wooden house per se, but there's wooden frames and stuff like that. So if we truly had like, you know, a, uh, a termite, global termite pandemic infestation, yeah, I think that would present a lot of problems as well. Well, a lot of people watched Contagion last year, and I know that because it shows up um, as a frequently viewed movie on Netflix. So yeah, yeah. it's probably for obvious reasons. But isn't it interesting that whilst we had plenty of um, news and discussions about viruses last year, that people thought that the best way to wind down at the end of the day of hearing all of that was to sit down and watch a movie about a virus that basically sweeps through the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I found that weird. Like, um, I think I was saying to you before, I couldn't bring myself to watch it last year. We're actually at the moment watching, like, there's a new adaptation of uh, The the Stand, the old, like, Stephen King book. And I think last year probably I wouldn't have wanted to watch that, to be honest Mm -hmm. with you. And I had wondered last year whether our appetite for kind of disaster movies or especially those apocalyptic sort of movies might, might wane a little bit. But, no, I think people are still fascinated by that that kind of content yeah yeah you're right in fact the stand, i started watching the stand as well and yeah. um i read the book many years ago uh, the stephen king book and saw the old miniseries as well and i was just thinking that is either like an incredible timing to have another a, a miniseries about yeah. another virus that wipes out the planet yeah, arriving on, on your doorstep just at the at the tail end of the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so I, I imagine that they started planning this well before the COVID-19 hit. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they did, yeah. It's <laughs> even like Stephen King was in the media, you know, this time last year or, or just after it when COVID was, you know, first becoming really big and he actually he said, this is not the stand, like, <laughs> like where it was going. It's funny when you watch a movie like that, even Contagion, I mean, the uh, it's a flippant thing to say, but it makes you think, well, COVID's not that bad in a way, because in those movies, when people get sick, everybody gets really, really sick really quickly. And it's kind of like, yeah. I think they even say in the stand, you know, six months ago, we were worried about Ebola. Like this thing is way worse than Ebola. So it's, it's truly... You know, as we know, COVID has a relatively low mortality rate amongst those who are affected. But in these sort of movies, the mortality rate's very, very high. And you are looking at a complete breakdown of society within a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. A lot of people were saying last year that uh, we might look back at this time as being like actually really beneficial simply because uh, whilst as horrific as the whole thing's been for everyone, uh, especially in those countries where it's just kind of gone out of control, yeah, yeah. Um, it could have been a lot worse and and it's a kind of like a, a dress rehearsal for something a lot worse and, and to get us yeah. a mindset on the right, what, what could happen and getting the systems in place and the protocols. Yeah, yeah that, that's one thing that's really scary about it in a way. Like it, it shows how badly prepared we are in some ways and we, we've done really well here in Australia like compared to a lot of other countries, but... To be honest with you, I always I assume the US would have had the sort of pandemic plan in the top drawer kind of ready to go. And whether they did or they didn't, or you know, it was partly the, the Trump administration's kind of ineptitude. I guess all those details will probably come out in years from now, but they haven't responded to it nearly as well as we thought they might have. And I mean, someone made an interesting point to me the other day and said, 
you know, if the US was subject to biological warfare, like, you know, from another country, and I'm not saying that that's what this is, um, they'd actually be quite unprepared for it. Like, you know, it's, it's run pretty rampant and the same in Europe and other places as well. So, yeah, like I'm always mindful in Australia where things are a lot better here than they are, you know, in some other parts of the world. Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing I saw yesterday actually was that uh, it seems to have really taken off in the UK. Oh, yeah. It's it's actually worse than the US, the UK. Yeah, Yeah, and what part of that is like there's a a different strain, although my, which is, you know, more contagious, not necessarily more... um, more lethal, but more contagious. But that strain, I think, is also in in the US now. And there's also a South African strain and a Brazilian strain. And um, yeah, my understanding is that these are, it's normal for viruses to mutate. Obviously, as they go along, they don't necessarily strengthen, they often weaken. Mm. As they, but they, you know, in this case, it seems to be becoming more contagious. So the UK is really struggling. Yeah, well, um, and um, it's, it, I think we've all, depending on our nature and the, the timing of all of this, we, we've all kind of had either a, a bit of a pessimistic outlook or a more of an optimistic one. And yeah. um, I, I think it's probably uh, normal to sort of teeter to, between both of those things. Yeah. Um, but um, if I were to look at, I mean, I I think when we this whole thing started this in sort of February, March last year, at least when it became more uh, when society became more cognizant of what was happening, um, I certainly would thought, oh, this will kind of blow over in a few months. You know, it'll be it'll it'll be sorted out. Uh, and then the other extreme, you had people saying it would be much much worse than what's ended up happening, which yeah. is catastrophic outcomes yeah. and. It hasn't actually been either of those extremes lately. I mean, we've had, you could argue it's catastrophic, but it could have been, strangely enough, it could be more catastrophic. It's a bit like saying, you know, you drop one nuclear warhead um, and that's catastrophic, but you could always, always drop 10, <laughs> you know, so it's... Yeah, 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 yeah. And like predictions are, I guess, a dangerous game at the best of times. But I, I noticed, like, you know, around Christmas or just before Christmas, there was that bit of a blow-up in, in Sydney... And then that sort of like popped up in a few other places as well. And there was some, I know like Norman Swan, you know, who's a medical commentator at the ABC, got a a lot of flack in some quarters because he sort of predicted, if you don't get on top of this now, you'll have, and he sort of put out some rolling numbers, I think on social media. And then those numbers didn't come to fruition, thankfully. And so he was kind of called out on that. So there, there has been a range of prediction over the last 12 months. And it's probably... Probably, yeah, it's probably a good reminder. You've got to be careful sticking your neck out with that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I think so. You're right because it's it's uh, it's so difficult if you're in that field or if you're in a medical field and people are looking to you for advice because if you predict that it's going to go really badly and it doesn't, then people then, uh, it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah. People then don't listen to you the next time you say there could be a problem. Yeah. Um, but then if you don't, um, make those predictions and you you're less conservative and things break out then you're in a worse situation where they say gee well you know you've, you've really downplayed the risk here yeah yeah absolutely and, and, I, and so i don't i don't actually envy a lot of the, the, the we've discussed this before i don't envy the leaders or the all the um chief medical officers or anyone because i just think that 
you're basically damned if you do in regardless of what you what action you take yeah um and yeah certainly i think um we we had our very first podcast was about the almost how, how impossible it is to predict the future it's something we have sure. to do all the time yeah we're really we're not very good at doing it unless it's something that we can set our watch by like we know that the sun is going to rise and set every day yeah oh yeah it's very hard in planning like i was listening to something yesterday about the tokyo olympics and you know they already got delayed from last year so they're now meant to happen in in june i think it is and the the new japanese prime minister made a statement and said these olympics will be a triumph over covid so in in some ways that's a sort of an emotional response to it saying we're going to um to show the world you know that we we can do this but the the COVID situation in Japan, unfortunately, is worse now mm. than it was, um, you know, when they postponed the original original games. So it's, it's how you plan major events and things like that in, in those circumstances. Is, it's, it's very, very difficult. Yeah, my, my sort of take on last year and what was happening with COVID is in, in retrospect, which is always useful, um, you know, the hindsight, uh, is that no one really knew what the hell was going on or what they were doing because yeah. it's like every country. I mean, even like the, the term flatten the curve, which was very popular at the start, yes. I, I haven't heard that at all. And it seems to me that that was never really, that that just really didn't work that much. And it, it, it seems, you know, you can certainly flatten it, but if you don't sort of stomp it out completely, then it's just going to shoot right back up again. It seems like an odd strategy in hindsight. That we oh, yeah. I think there's been, you know, maybe some confusion or even some, I don't want to use the word dishonesty, but like lack of transparency over different governments and authorities' real strategy on this because very few of them have said openly they're going for elimination. And yet in some circumstances, it seems like that's the policy they're pursuing. But then you can't really go for elimination in one state and then not go for elimination in another state. I guess unless you're going to take the closed border thing really really seriously and I mean as a slight segue one of the the things that really surprised me about last year was I, I'd never really thought of Australia as a place where the borders between states mattered all that much you know I've, I've lived in in Melbourne and, and Canberra and in Sydney for a little while a long time ago and yeah the, the borders here have always seemed pretty arbitrary to me and so the fact and I can even remember early on when they were talking about closing state borders I thought no nah, I don't think that'll happen I just don't I just don't see that as a reality. And I was, I was completely wrong about that. Not only have they been closed, but they've opened and in some cases reclosed. And most governments have indicated that they, you know, kind of reserve the right to keep doing that, possibly even after vaccine rollout. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I mean, last year was, were were full of surprises. Um, and um, yeah, as we discussed, we, we've got a few little um, questions, I thought, that you and yeah. I can answer uh, as to to kind of summarise the year. Uh, I'm interested to know what you think um, and no doubt uh, you'll be maybe surprised or not surprised by what I think. Uh, so this is kind of like five questions to summarise 2020. Yeah. All right. So I'll start with the first one. I know um, language and the use of language is often a bit of a pet peeve of yours. Um, I know you don't like the word. Um, oh, let me let me try and remember. There's one there's one particular phrase or, or word that you can't stand. 
It'll come to me later. But um, there's a whole bunch of them. We could probably do the rest of the podcast. <laughs> Words and, and expressions Cam doesn't like, yeah. but we might leave that for another episode. Yes, true. Well, no, my, my parents have got a big pet peeve against a, a, a word that doesn't actually exist that's used all the time, agreeance. Agreeance. Yes, instead of agreements. Yeah, we've reached agreeance as opposed to we've reached agreements. I really dislike the word learnings. Oh, that's the one. That's the that's one. That's the one you were thinking of? Yeah. Yes. I, I hate that one as well. I, I often strike it out and, and put down knowledge. I think that's... Kind of or, knowledge or, 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 or lesson, even if it just depends. But I yeah, it depends yeah, on what it is. Yeah, really, and I and I dislike the way it's seeped into the vernacular in the last couple of years. Of yeah, and I, I I'll probably end it there because I'll, I'll just keep going and going. <laughs> <laughs> so what? So in 2020, what is the most annoying phrase or new term that you that that came out of 2020? Uh, COVID normal. I can't believe this. We have actually landed on an exact. Is it really? <laughs> okay, you you tell me why you hate it, and then I'll tell you why I hate it. All right. Well, that's really interesting because I really thought that I was the only one that that actually because I hadn't actually even told anyone that. Yeah, I, and and just for transparency, we swear to everyone listening, we have not been in cahoots on this one. We haven't. Um, we did. I, we both knew there were questions. Obviously, Nick prepared some questions for this. We haven't compared answers or anything like that, which probably goes to show how little preparation we put into this going forward. <laughs> yeah, well, well, first of all, the first time it, it, it annoyed me wasn't so much when it was said in sort of the, uh, the government speech. It was when people started adopting it in normal language when you see it on social media and I really I, I don't like um, catchphrases that, that politicians use being picked up by other people so I also don't like phrases like just you know stop the boats and then and then seeing people um, walk around saying stop the boats or, or saying it on social media because it's just it feels like uh, they've been manipulated into saying it. They're well, slogans, aren't they? And I, I guess the risk is, like, if people start speaking in slogans, you think they're thinking in slogans as well, you know. Um, but the reason I don't like that particular one is, first of all, I think it's like a, it's an oxy, oxymoron. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, like, you, you can either be normal or you can be covert you know yes yeah 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 the idea of inventing this new thing which is like uh, a hybrid between abnormal and normal it's like saying abnormal normal and it just doesn't it doesn't doesn't and and, and certainly like um would we feel comfortable saying something like ebola normal you know like i'll, I'll just it just no doesn't. no that's right and yeah and it's not clear even what what our sort of desired endpoint is in a way because they're saying, well, we're going through this stage of, you know, restrictions and everything at the moment, all of which, um, you know, I'm not questioning the need for masks and all that sort of stuff. I completely support that. But then we're working towards a normal, but it's like COVID normal. So what does that mean? And in a way, I'm not critical of them not knowing what that means because we're all sort of working this out as we go along. But it's, I guess, you know, you might be able to speak mm. to your psychologist hat on, but it's... Um, you know, you need to give people something to hope for, I suppose, don't you? So yeah, people yeah. want normal. Yes, you're saying um, as well, I think what you're getting to is that there's subtext to it, which is about yeah. It's saying it's a message that's telling you one thing, but it's also saying something else. It's basically saying, oh, by the way, we're, it's, we're some good news here. We've 
where everything's everything's moving towards being normal, but there's like a killer lurking in the shadows. Is yeah. implied yeah. threat. There's an implied threat there. In, yeah, I haven't like looked into where it emerged from, but I can only assume that it's um it's media speak or you know like media advisor speak that it, I don't know whether it was even the Victorian um, government that sort of first came up with it, but that's where I kind of that's the context. I remember hearing it like that long period of lockdown. And it's interesting, Christmas was a really big psychological um, thing, like a goal in a way, like having a, a normal Christmas or at least a COVID normal Christmas. And that's why I think the, you know, Victoria thankfully got to this point by really October um, and going into November where things were much, much better. They, you know, had all those double donut days and then Christmas was looming on the horizon and then just before Christmas, things started getting a little bit rocky again. But that concept of normalcy, COVID normalcy. Now, I think the vaccine, it's interesting how that works in that context, because we've all been holding out for vaccine. And vaccine has been developed a lot quicker than I think most of us would have expected when we were having this conversation at the start of 2020. But we're starting to realise that vaccine's not necessarily a silver bullet. So perhaps I thought maybe vaccine would take, you know, two years to sort of, or even longer to be developed, but that when we got it, that would sort of mm. be it and rub it out. And we're learning that there's a lot more complexity around that. And that's all part of what COVID normal is, I suppose. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. I think um, it, no one really knows what's going to happen with the vaccine. I was, I think it's, we're, we're almost at the, the next stage, when COVID first came out, no one really knew what was happening. There was a bit of confusion. I think mm. there's probably a bit of confusion around that as well. Like there's lots of questions like if it gets rolled, how fast can it get rolled out as one? Like it, it, it may take a good 12 months before it actually has any impact. Yeah. Uh, and then what's the what happens when you have it? Do you still get COVID or not? Do you get it and just recover immediately? Uh, do you Are you not susceptible to it? Can you still get it? It sounds like you still can. And Will it, will it work for all the mutated versions of it as well? All of these sort of questions. How often will you have to have it? Like, will it become like a flu shot? Yes. Which, you know, many people have the flu shot. Not everybody does. Um, so I think it'll be, if not mandatory, that you'll find that life, it's much more difficult to conduct normal normal life um, without having it once it's, you know, freely accessible to everybody. And there's... I mean, I think I talked about this like way back early last year, like there's going to be, there's going to be many vaccines. So we're already seeing that there's like, you know, a number available to us in Australia. I think we've signed up more heavily to AstraZeneca, but, you know, China's got one that they're rolling out to different parts of the world and Russia's got one that they <laughs> rolled out very quickly that Vladimir Putin's daughter took, apparently. I don't know how successful that is, but um, yeah, a lot of questions around it. Yeah, that's right. And I think... Um... It's, 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 it's quite interesting that um, maybe it, it was always inevitable, but with, obviously COVID may become so political uh, when you wouldn't think that something about health and something like that would be as easy to make so political. And what I mean by that is that it's kind of like there's artefacts that you can either agree to or disagree with that kind of put you in different camps and so one of them is the obvious one was the face mask wearing thing. It's like, you know, there are people in the camp of like it's uh, restrictions on our freedom and they're dangerous to wear masks. And then the others 
who are like, no, no, it's almost like a symbol of being cautious and, and listening to science. And you get these two camps forming. And then the vaccine, there's these two camps forming as well of uh, people who are very much, you know, worried about taking it. It's been rushed. What kind of implications does it have in the long term? And then the others, again, it's like, oh, well, science says it's, it's, the science says it's safe and we've got to listen to the science and it's better better than having the virus spread around. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel like the flavour of last year has been uh, there's probably the sensible middle ground, which you don't hear a lot from in in, in social media and, and in conversation. Well, I think in conversation you hear it more, which is, well, you know what? Um, there are situations where you, you, you do listen to the science, but you have to keep it also be critical of things you have to look and, and and say to yourself oh i'll be i'll be convinced by the data and yeah. i'll be convinced by the science and then and i'll take it and i think that that's sensible um i think that having this sort of almost make up your mind before you even know either either way is 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 the thing that we've got to kind of stomp out um yeah, yeah it's it not not thinking things through um, and I'll, then that's my kind of my stance on vaccines is that I'll definitely take it if, if they're saying they've done all the tests and if they're saying it's yeah. safe. Um, but I'm not going to go in um, uh, not knowing anything about it and just blindly take it either. I'd like to know a little bit more because uh, they, might, they might tell you things that are quite important, like side effects and things that you might experience. And, yeah. um, and maybe there'll be options, to your point, there might be options of, of different vaccines you could um, take. Yeah. Well, yeah. All right. Why don't we move on to um, uh, the next question. Um, what was, okay, so this is what you think was the most talked about thing last year. So in 2020, <laughs> what do you think was the most talked about thing last year? Uh, hazard a guess. I wanted to say it was the AFL and like, you know, whether the, whether the season, you know, <laughs> would it be on, would it not be on? And then it turned out to be this weird sort of like, you know, hybrid season, but that's a, you know, I'm not even in Melbourne anymore, but that's a, or at the moment, but that's a very Melbourneian perspective, I suppose. Like, you know, I don't want it to be COVID, right. But can you give me something else? What, <laughs> what else are we talking about? Well, I, I, had, I was desperately stretching to find this thing to be, to be surprise you. Yeah. Uh, and I had two, there were two options available. One of them was Donald Trump. And yeah, well, yeah, yeah. And the second one being COVID. Uh, but then it occurred to me that uh, even Trump was talking about COVID. So if, if mm. everyone's talking about Trump, then uh, they were probably talking about him as well as COVID anyway. So I think, you know, that's unfortunately, like if we do this podcast in a year from now and do 2021, we might, there might be some other thing that like, um, yeah. Might, yeah, I mean, there's, it was COVID, obviously, but there's like there were so many subsets to COVID mm. and ways we were responding to it. I mean, one, do you remember early on people were saying a lot, we're all in this together? Mm -hmm. And it was even sort of like on Instagram, I think early on, there were kind of celebrities, you know, in, you know, big compounds in Malibu and some stuff like that, like sort of doing shout outs to people and stuff and saying mm. we're all in this together. But it, it turned out very quickly, like, we're not all in this together. Like, we all have like, different situations and different, you know, advantages and disadvantages. And in some ways, well, you know, some really, really encouraging things have come out of COVID, like, you know, some examples of community solidarity and all that sort of stuff. But unfortunately, it's also shown a lot of differences and 
and fractures in in society like be that um you know state governments putting up borders against each other conversations we were having last year about working from home and how all that works so because that's reality for a lot of people you know me included but then a lot of other people don't have that experience and that you know what works essential or what isn't essential um economic haves and have nots all that sort of thing so for me it a lot, of, a lot of the conversation last year was about points of difference. Yeah, do you know what I think is interesting as well is that if last year was such an interesting one in that if you put the COVID-19 aside, there were big events that were occurring besides mm. that. So we had the election, the US election, which was like probably, it will probably go down in our lifetime as the most memorable election of all time. I, I can't yeah. imagine anything ever topping that. That was, that was absolutely amazing what was going on. Yeah. And, um, of course, all the riots and um, protests and things that were occurring overseas. Yeah. Um, you could almost put the recent, um, uh, um, what is it called again, the um, uh, the storming of um, Capitol Hill. You could have yeah. almost put that into the camp, but, of course, that happened this year. But yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's a byproduct of last year. But there was all of this really insane stuff happening last year, and we could quite easily have said, um, uh, what was what was the most talked about thing last last year? Black Lives Matter or something? That could have been. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good point. So if COVID wasn't there, I think BLM would have been. I mean, it was big, obviously, but it would have been seen as sort of really like definitely the biggest thing happening in the US, like tied up with the election and a sense of social change. And in some ways, like you know, we talk about like the year 1968, for example, being a really big year in, in sort of American politics and world politics, like 2019, 2020 sort of had a similar flavour to it. There was a lot of stuff going on internationally as well, sort of in geopolitics. So tensions between China and the US, sort of like, you know, trade war and strategic tensions and also the relationship between Australia and China, like has just deteriorated a, a, an enormous amount during 2020, but didn't, didn't really make the news until we found out like, you know, China wasn't buying Australian lobsters and things like that. Suddenly it like smacked people in the face yeah. if they weren't really paying close attention to it. And for those of us, you know, who do, it was like, well, yeah, where have you been? Like, this is where it's, this is the slide that we've been looking at for the last couple of years. So there was definitely a lot going on besides um, COVID. What, what's your view then on, um, I don't know enough about this, but if, if for, for whatever, for whatever reason, if things deteriorated even further with China and, Let's say you didn't have them as an option as a trading partner. Would Australia, uh, obviously they're our key trading partner, but could Australia basically adapt by just trading with everyone else uh, a lot more? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think it's it's sort of segmented. So there's, there's some commodities and areas where China can turn off the tap to us very, very easily, and that's essentially what they've been doing. Um, so things like you know, wine and lobster and barley and, you know, I don't want to be flippant, like they're big industries, yes. like individually in Australia and there's certain people hurting, but they can do that without hurting themselves. Whereas, um, and even coal to some extent, but other things like iron ore, for example, China can't stop buying iron ore, Australian iron ore, without really, really hurting itself. Mm. Um, so it seems... It seems more likely it won't be a sort of black and white thing where, you know, all trade with China will end, but like different 
different segments, different sections of the economy will evolve. And we'd already been talking about, you know, there's this diversification idea where Australia is like looking for new markets to um, to sell our goods to. And that's certainly happening in in many, many areas. But there's no single market or even combination of markets that can sort of just suddenly fill the void that China's leaving in, in some of those areas. So um, China will continue to be a very, very important trade partner for Australia a long way into the future. I've got no doubt about that, but um, it, will, it will definitely evolve. It already is evolving. And I think we'll, we'll certainly try to become less dependent on them in certain key areas, yeah. Yeah, I, I often wondered that. There must be grumblings about um, just gradually uh, like weaning yourself off uh, yeah. just over time. You can't just cut, cut it off immediately, but just, no. just as a contingency that you can't always, if having all your eggs in one basket always um, yeah. is a bit worrying, especially. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, one area I know a little bit about from you know my time in the university sector is obviously international students and that. That's kind of been like a bit like a, a slow train wreck or, you know, watching something happen. And it goes back before COVID. And um, there's just been huge demand from China for uh, Australian universities and, and tertiary institutions. And obviously, we've looked to fill that demand. But whether we've been, you know, lazy in developing other markets or we just were focused on China, but that's that's where we've been quite dependent. And um the, the political tensions I were talking about predate COVID. And even in 2018, 2019, I know we were concerned about China sort of either turning off that tap or slowing down the flow of students coming out of China. And we, most big Australian universities have been actively looking for other markets. And um, the, the, the simple truth is there's not sort of, you can't just go to India and hope that India will suddenly like fill all the placements that, that China would um, would feel, and you know, and COVID on top of it, um, Australia is sort of finding at the moment that because we're not offering um, in-classroom experience as much as European and American universities, they're actually sort of turning away from Australia. So that's that's going to be a big story um, unfolding. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like, uh, I, I, mean, I was just thinking with all the things you mentioned, uh, it's kind of like. Uh, even in, in like a relationship or even a friendship or something, throwing in stresses or things that, that really disrupt the norm is the real test of a relationship. And um, it seems that that's exactly what's happened here. Like we, as to your point, the borders get thrown up between states. We've always had, you know, a bit of uh, rivalry between states and a little bit of tension, but uh, the, the situation actually um, pitted every, all these states up against each other and, and all of yeah. a sudden we discovered they weren't um, on as good of terms as you would hope uh, for one country, right? That all the different premiers um, basically yeah. wanting to do their own thing and and being quite uh, adversarial towards each other. In, yeah. uh, quite I, like that, I like that stress test idea. Like with a relationship, I think, you know, fairly early on in the, in the dating scenario, I think you should go on a trip together. You know, obviously not the first or second date, but, you know, if you've been dating for a while and you're looking to move to the next level, you can work out a lot about a person by the way they travel, whether it's sort of holiday or other kind of travel. Because normally if you're going to have major problems with somebody, I think it, it usually manifests itself. Flushes them out. <laughs> yeah, as um, George DeSantis from Seinfeld said, the, the um, uh, weekends away are relationship killers. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, and like Jerry sort of, he takes the girl away early on at one point because he thinks it accelerates. That's right. The intimacy level in a yeah. relationship. Like, um, jump a few levels. You, you, get, you move ahead in the relationship. You're, yeah. You're the problem is like you might jump to a few levels and find yourself somewhere you don't necessarily want to be. But I guess, yeah. I guess it makes all things clear. Yeah, definitely. I think, isn't it always, it's kind of like, um, I think you're right. If you go away on a holiday or even move in with someone, I think you're peeling back the layers, aren't you, to, to, to find the what happens behind the scenes. It's a bit like, um, what do they say? Um, you don't want to know how the sausage is made. Um, <laughs> yeah, in fact, this um, sort of, not to go back to COVID, <laughs> but I know like COVID obviously had impact on, on relationships, right? It had an impact on so many things. And I have heard anecdotally, you know, stories of people who um, basically ended up moving in together maybe a lot faster than they would have done otherwise, or maybe they never would have done otherwise. So in some cases, it's sort of, if people wanted to spend time together because of the lockdown, their choice was either not to spend any time together or spend all their time together. So in some cases, you know, it, it put people together really quickly in that way. And, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about my friends in the podcast, but I have heard one case where it worked out really, really well. Um, but I've heard other cases sort of at a distance where it hasn't worked out so well. And, and of course, there's been people who they might have started dating, but then suddenly like a relationship with someone in the next suburb became a long distance relationship. So that would put, you know, all the, all the stresses on that. So I'm, I'm sure in the next year or two, we'll, we'll see some really great studies Oh, we'll have studies coming out of our... our, our a little bit forever, you know. For, for the next 10 years. Yeah. This. Um, let's move on to the next uh, question. This is a, a lighter one. Um, what was the best movie you saw in 2020? Yeah, I, I, I saw very few new movies mm-hmm. in 2020. So from it memory, I went... It doesn't have to be a new one. What's that? It doesn't have to be a new one. Oh, no, no. You could have seen oh, Jurassic oh. Park for the first time if you like. You saw Jurassic Park for the first time? No, no, no. I said you could. (laughs) Oh, okay, okay. All right. Well, I, the best, I only saw two movies at the cinema. It was like Tenant and The Gentleman. Yep. I think, I like Tenant actually, but The Gentleman was probably my favourite. And then um, in terms of the best movie I saw, okay, this is weird, but it was actually a a really old movie that I'd never seen before called Harvey. Um, that I, I re-watched it really at the very end of 2020, actually. But I, I've gone back and watched a lot of old movies. I, I like old movies. And I, I watched a lot of Hitchcock movies, um, including most, most I probably had seen before, but some I hadn't. And all those classic ones like Dial M for Murder and Vertigo and, mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Um, and then, you know, Jimmy Stewart is in a lot of Alfred Hitchcock movies. So I sort of started getting into this... Jimmy Stewart guy, this actor, and he made this movie, um, I think it's sort of in the late late 40s, um, called Harvey, and it's about a man, it's not Alfred Hitchcock, by the way, it's, I'm not sure who the director is, it's about a man who, his best friend is an imaginary rabbit, and only, only he can see the rabbit, the rabbit's name is Harvey, and um, his sister is like really concerned about this, you know, brother's obviously crazy. He's walking around, going to the bar with Harvey, talking to Harvey. Harvey seems to be a pretty good influence on him, by the way, though. Like, he's a courteous man and he's always introducing Harvey to people. They, they drink a little bit, but nothing bad. And his sister tries to have him committed to sort of a mental hospital because she's convinced Harvey's, um, well, you know, 
you know, yeah, yeah, um, that he's crazy. But then in a sort of bizarre mix-up, she ends up getting committed to the mental institution instead. And it turns out that she actually thinks she can occasionally see Harvey as well. And then as as this guy is, like, talking to all these people about Harvey, like, he just softens them all up. And by by the end of it, the main sort of treating psychiatrist asks him if Harvey can be his friend instead. (laughs) You just spoiled it for me, by the way. Yeah, I have. I'm sorry. sorry. Um, No, you should still watch it. It's a really really lovely... It's Jimmy Stewart, right? And when was his mate? Yeah, yeah. When was his mate? Um, In, what, 70s or something? Oh, no, I know. It's really old. It's like, I'd I'd say it was made between 1945 and 1955. It was like... Really? That sounds like a very... Yeah, it sounds like almost like a modern, like, film. Like, we just... Yeah, it it could be. um, Whether they... I mean, I could... They could remake it. It would be... It'd be different now. Like, it it takes a much more sort of innocent and gentle look at mental illness. And it's, it's, it's strange in a way because it sort of alludes to some pretty nasty things going on in the asylum. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't really show you, but you can tell the subtext is that in those days, the, um, the, the asylum mental institution was a place, you know, no one wanted to go because what, you know, the, the attendants there would handle you pretty roughly and there was different kinds of treatments, you know, electroshock, all that, that sort of thing. So that's, that's the subtext to it as well. And, I mean, without spoiling, I guess I'm spoiling a little bit, but he's given, at one point, he's given a choice, basically, of um, he can take a medication that'll, and he'll never see Harvey again. Mm-hmm. But then also the fallout from medication would be that he just won't be himself anymore. Yes. So there's that sort of, you know, so all his his compassion and his empathy and all those things that make him this really lovely guy are sort of wrapped up in his um, his visualisation of Harvey as well. Yeah, it's it's very uh, like a Jungian Jungian sort of uh, view of, of nature. It's like you've got the yin and yang, and the uh, you know the dark part of you um, is is like basically intertwined with the light side, and that, that forms the whole. So yeah. here is if you yeah. if you extract the darker part out, you're actually removing the whole as well. And and I think that's um that's kind of a uh, I suppose the human condition isn't it it's, I, I love that analysis i'd love to see you write like a, <laughs> a review of it like a review of it like a, a psychological treatment of, of harvey because it, i mean whether that's been done or not before i i don't know but it, it certainly deserves it. it it sort of got me to thinking too about what we consider to be crazy and not crazy and what we consider to be normal and abnormal behavior and the whole idea of eccentricity and like I remember growing up as a little kid like hearing stories about one of my you know great aunts who apparently used to let her her cat like sit on top of her head like a like a turban or a hat and that was just considered to be you know that was what she did that was okay but you know whether that would be I think in some ways we have less tolerance for people's behavior well yeah we do in some ways we're not we're better off in a way because i think there have been topics like um anxiety and depression things like that which used to be sort of pushed under the surface and you have to deal with it in the asylum perhaps Mm. and whereas today people talk about their um, mental health a lot more so it's become like more recognized that hey you know what everyone has emotional issues Uh, it's not you're actually not sick if you've got um extreme emotions from time to time or even if you experience uh, anxiety every day, because basically that looks, that's every animal is basically, you know, it has a little bit of vigilance going on all the time. You just have to look at a rabbit um, hopping around knowing that that 
poor rabbit spends a lot of its time a little bit worried that some creature is going to come around and gobble it up, even in a even in a cage. You know, they've got a, that, that their eyes are sort of see, you know, looking out for um, predators and things. So um, I think it's um, uh, a good thing to. I think yeah, in the recent times, I think we've we've gotten a lot better at recognizing that we're animals as well, and we're we're basically hardwired to to worry and to fret and to suffer. Uh, but we're also got the opposite as well to, to to dream and aspire to greater things and have have good humor and a good time with people as well. So it's um, we might move on. To, oh yeah, sorry, I had to tell you. I, oh yeah, sorry, I forgot. Um, yeah, I did see. I, I saw a film I really liked um, called The Lighthouse. Okay, um, I don't think I saw that. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, so the story behind this one was this was just when COVID was um, about to hit us properly. So I think it was in Baton Fair, but the last time I travelled, I went over to Perth. Yeah. And I got an invitation on the flight back saying, uh, would you like to put a bid in for a business class seat? Oh, yeah. yeah. And I basically got the invitation and I and I, I selected the lowest possible value because I figured, well, I don't really want to pay for a business class yeah. seat. So I, I don't know how much it was. It was very, very cheap. But um, shortly after that, I actually got the um, – I actually got it. And so I managed to fly back from Perth business class on a proper international oh, flight. Stretch out, yeah, very nice. Yeah, well, it was a proper, yeah, proper business class seat, and I got uh, dinner and a few drinks, and I sat back and I watched the lighthouse. Yeah. And when I got home, um, my wife uh, Christine, she was saying, she said, "Oh, how are you feeling? You're tired." And I was, and I said to her, "I just had the most relaxing um, time of my life. <laughs> I, I got to completely de-stress and just sit back and watch it." Um, I won't tell you exactly what the film was about, but, but like like some of the twists and turns. But the the basic premise behind it is it's it's set at a lighthouse, and there are two men running the lighthouse: the lighthouse captain and the other guy who's basically doing all the chores. Okay. And you follow those guys around. Uh, it's a psychological thriller. Uh, and what I think is really interesting now, in hindsight, is that it actually is also um, a film about lockdown or being locked down with one person for an extended period of time and the sort of stresses that we, you know, we were discussing just then yeah. uh, of being with just that one person and their personality and their habits uh, and um, also the, the concern and the worry about potentially being stuck there a lot longer or permanently. Mm. And um, so the film... Uh, deals it's, it's very much a psychological um, in, in nature in that it looks at whether or not uh, it looks at one 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 character in particular his suffering and and is it what he's seeing actually real is he imagining certain things mm-hmm. is he um, is he being manipulated and it's so it's quite an interesting one if you like a, a good psychological thriller um, it's pretty sound, intense it does sound good especially at 35,000 feet at, you know stretched out on a plane. Oh yeah. Yeah. Have you noticed, like, in business class, the attitude to alcohol is completely different to economy. So, like, if you ask for like a second glass of wine with your dinner in economy, you know, and the wine's not going to be as good, obviously. Like, you, you you often have to sort of like convince them to give it to you. They assume that you're like some kind of you know wild thug who just can't be trusted with alcohol. But in business class, they just literally ply you with wine. Well, that's been my experience in business class, anyway. Yeah, well, uh, to be honest, I don't think I've, I've had enough experience in business class to develop a, <laughs> a routine to know. But I, I look, definitely, um, 
the only other time I flew business class um, was with um, Christine and we, when we sat down on the flight, they walked over and, and said, what would you like to drink before we'd even got close to taking yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, and we looked at each other and we just thought, wow, this is a, this is like the most the best thing ever. And and yeah. I think you'd, you'd only think of it as the best thing ever, uh, in contrast to your normal flying experience. Well, that's like, right. That's the problem. Yeah. And then like there's this saying that one of the most exquisite tortures you can administer is to give someone a, a little bit of luxury and then take it away from them again. Yes. So, like, you've never flown business class, like you don't really know what you're missing. But then if you fly once. And then you go back to, you know, and I've flown economy more than I've flown business, but, I, you know, I have flown business a number of times and then you go back and do economy and it's, it's harder because you know what it's like up there. It's, uh, yeah, certainly it's, like, let's face it, flying, flying in general, the whole experience from end to end is torture. It's, it's a horrible thing. You've got to get to the airport. You're usually tired. You haven't slept very well. You've got to park your car. You've got to go through that horrible security. You've got to line up holding all your stuff. You eat terrible food at the airport the, the the flying experience is the one thing i don't miss in in all of this uh covid 19 I, I would quite easily abandon it except for yeah definitely business class is a luxury and uh i you know would love it that, that's the one thing i would love uh to do all the time if i could um you know, you know it's funny um uh i think it was um this could be one of those beat up sort of stories, but years ago, Johnny Depp apparently was, because he was going through financial trouble and, and apparently um, his financial advisors were saying, well, one of our big expenses is your private jet. And so <laughs> you could just fly first class instead. And he apparently went on this big rant saying, I'm not going to, so how, how could I fly first class? I'm, how could you put me through that? And <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, re I read this profile of him a year or two ago and he, he was really upset because it had been reported that he was spending $50,000 a month on wine. Yes. And I might be getting the figures wrong here, but he said it's at least $100,000 a month. Yeah, that's right. I saw that. <laughs> and a lot of that was like, I'm like his wine consumption probably is, you know, pretty impressive. But a lot of that was the, the vintages. You know, he's like literally putting away like $10,000 bottles of wine so that's it's going to add up yeah <laughs> I, I imagine that exactly right you're right the little bit of um luxury uh for us probably spoils us but you can imagine for people who are like multi-millionaires uh who are just like off the chart uh and they're they're literally they're yeah, drinking the most expensive things you can buy and eating the most expensive food uh that would ruin you as well if you suddenly lost your fortune and you were right back to um, having, I guess, a $20 bottle of wine uh, with, with dinner, which uh, <laughs> we probably enjoy, but uh, you imagine that they, they, they might take one sip and, and spit it out. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, okay. Ah, this is a good one. What was the most controversial topic last year? Ooh, that's a good question. Like... I th okay, so I think here in Australia, it was really the you know the restrictions and lockdown and and people's attitudes towards that. Like, I, but I'm particularly thinking of Victoria, even though I wasn't there. But that was what you yeah. know. I, basically, Dan Andrews. Like, like, I'll put it straight out there. That's what that's the controversy that I picked up on the most. I think internationally in the US, there was a huge controversy over masks. The use of masks but then in Australia that controversy I don't think was really there so much and 
and in Asia, you know, I discussed before, I spent a lot of time over the years in Southeast Asia in particular, and that controversy wasn't there. So yeah, for me, I, what I picked up on was some things were really controversial in some places, not so controversial mm. in others, but probably the one I focused on at home was around restrictions, Dan Andrews, uh, I guess, policies around how he responded to the pandemic down there. Yeah, look, I think overall, if we looked globally, I think generally you'd have to, there was a few controversial ones we could probably list. The, the top one would be uh, lockdowns. Yeah. I think it has to be because I think that, that was something that impacted everyone, at least to, to some degree or not. There was so much discussion around, you know, did Sweden do the right thing in not locking down or are they playing a longer game where they, they're thinking that this is going to drag on for years so we might as well just find a way to operate without lockdowns mm. even though they've had sort of I think they've put restrictions in place I'm not sure if they've done any sort of lockdown um, and, uh, and you know then it's interesting because like it's very hard to compare all the different countries because you look at I'm not sure where Sweden sits at the moment I know it's not low on the list but I don't think it's in the top uh, with the UK and the US as being one of the hardest hit but then there's so many geographical factors and, and social factors that play into it. So it's not just your policy and strategy. Sometimes it's just luck. And I think um, we've had a lot of luck in Australia uh, and, and New Zealand as well, just by the fact that we've got the uh, our borders of water uh, and we're isolated. It takes a bit of effort to get, get to us. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly, I mean, there's that. And there's also the fact that we're, we're not, as, not nearly as dense as, as Europe or Africa or, um, uh, or the, even the US. Yeah. I think early on I had some vague expectation that there'd be a more unified global sort of response to it. So I remember early on people were sort of saying, well, what are the WHO doing? And, you know, they did do various things and make various statements, but it became pretty clear pretty quickly that they weren't going to have a driving international policy mm. role there. And I mean, I guess the way it's turned out, we probably shouldn't be that surprised. Like mm. national governments are going to make national policy mm. for different countries. But I, I got this suspicion that if, that's, if this had happened during the 1990s or the even the early 2000s, I think there would have been a um, at least a bigger attempt at a, a global like UN-led unified sort of response to it somehow. Yeah, I, I think you could almost make the case as well that uh, President Trump was the most controversial uh, thing last year. Yeah. And I, I think certainly towards the end of the year because I think COVID was less in the media across the world and, and when the election was occurring, uh, that came about. Um, but certainly I think... Uh, what, what's happening in the US right now has been such a, like it's a, an extraordinary disruption that has occurred in last year. I mean, I can't think of any, in my lifetime, I can't think of any point in history where they, they've had the intersection of, uh, of, of the president and, and how, you know, a, a, a disruptor that he is, plus the COVID pandemic, plus the Black Lives Matter stuff that was going on there as well. I mean, yeah. it's absolutely extraordinary that all of these things, the only thing that could, could have topped it would have been if there was another world war, I would have thought, or um, yeah. there's nothing I can think of that, that's, that's, that's had as many um, deaths as well. I mean, we've, we've sent people to war, yeah. but, never, no, but the, the death toll is much higher than that. And it's, 
So whatever's happening, if you're in the US right now, I don't know if you, it would be very hard to untangle COVID from yeah, what's happening. Yeah. He, you're right though. He is a huge figure of controversy. And I've heard like stories anecdotally to people I know in the US and where there's been real divisions in family and social groups about it, like mm. particularly in families, because you, you know, you often tend to make friends with people that broadly share your political beliefs and assumptions, not, not always, but families can be very different as we know. So there, you know, there are many cases where families have different political opinions and usually it's very easy just to leave those on the sidelines and not sort of bring them up. There might be the occasional heated argument, but, or heated discussion, but, you know, I have heard these stories with like Thanksgiving and Christmas gatherings that when one family member knows that another one sort of is signed up to the, the Trump agenda, they just, they can't reconcile it with <laughs> the person that they, that, that they think they know. And they, um, and, you know, often with quite sad consequences, like people just avoid seeing each other or they, you know, have a big argument about it. So that's, yes, yeah, he's a, he's a divisive person. Yeah, well, I think it's it's worthy, certainly worthy of us. We're planning on doing a bit of a after the whole uh, when Trump leaves office, we'll do like a bit of a an election um, retrospective election mm. uh, look at that because I think that was fascinating, especially what was happening recently. Uh, and uh, I think yeah, certainly one of the one of the things that's coming out loud and clear is much more than ever before. I think we've seen social media has just been fueling um, this divisiveness like never before. And those social media sites like Twitter and even Facebook, they're designed basically to feed you the same information over and over. So if you start looking up um, left-wing stuff or right-wing stuff, then the algorithm is designed to just keep adding more and more to that. So it shows you the same thing. It shows you things that are that align with your worldview. So, yeah. It, yeah, so we're getting polarised. Everyone's getting really polarised. And I think there's a there's an unfortunate thing like the one you mentioned, you've got families now where you could have people who are perhaps more moderate in the middle um, but may lean a particular way, but you're not allowed to, people aren't allowed to lean anymore because yeah. You're, yeah. Either, you're either with them or against them, as they say. That's no, true. And we often, well, not, maybe not often, but sometimes we find out things about, friends or family members um, and their political, you know, persuasions or whatever or things they're sort of signed up to, so to speak, through social media. So it's not necessarily through having a discussion with them, but you see that mm. they might have even liked something, you know, and you think, why did they, why did they like that? Why did they <laughs> share that? And it's, it's not really a healthy way to interact. Like you're better off if you want to have that conversation, having a conversation with them sort of directly, yeah, I suppose. Absolutely. And a greater tolerance and discussion, uh, you know, that's always been the way, you know, even if you, if your view, viewpoints diverge completely, then that's actually a good opportunity to, to talk to someone and, and, and try and understand, you know, where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, we're getting less of that, aren't we? We're getting much more reaction and less contemplation. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly on Twitter, actually. <laughs> I, I use Twitter, but I, you know, I try to use it in a fairly defined way now. And mm-hmm. I, I've been on there, I think, since 2009. It's definitely a less nice place than it was in 2009. Like, I, it's always had problems, but it seemed in 2009 or 2010, those early years, it seemed to be fairly collegial mm. like with people kind of sharing things they'd read and sharing ideas. And now you have sort of bot factories and all these sort of like, 
Yeah. Also, there's bots of one thing. There's people on there who are just, you know, literally trolling, like they're hiding behind sort of, you know, uh, anonymous handles and things like that and literally like throwing grenades, you know, verbal grenades or sort of, you know, at people and it's um, it's not a healthy place. Yeah, well, that's right. You wouldn't have thought that it would have so much influence because, like, I would have thought, like, a few years ago, someone would have said, oh, well, how, to what extent do you think it influences things in, in our society? And someone would have gone, well, you see a lot of this social media stuff, but most of the people aren't really talking on that. Like, they're, they're yeah, yeah. observing. But um, we've just seen recently with um, Trump being um, shut down on Twitter that actually yeah. he's lost. He, like his platform basically which is amazing like yeah. yeah that was what he relied on i mean no other president ever thought to use twitter the way he did and yeah that's true he revolutionized it absolutely mm-hmm. um by direct communication so you know like he didn't he didn't spend anywhere near as much in 2016 on his campaign compared to hillary clinton because he he essentially the media was talking about him all the time anyway, even if they weren't <laughs> saying good things about him, they were just putting him on top of the agenda. And then he was using Twitter to directly communicate. And a lot of people, probably including me in the early days, kind of derided that because mm. his, his communication didn't seem to be particularly, you know, eloquent or polished or anything like that. But it, um, it not only did it cut through, but it kind of spawned a, a movement. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it is, it's fascinating, and also fascinating that someone, a man of his age as well, was so tech savvy. I don't, don't want to be ageist, but no, no, no. generally speaking, like uh, politicians and the people who come through, uh, and of his age group, and that I guess he's a baby boomer, isn't he? Yeah, um, he's a yeah. yeah uh, don't we? You know, treats. And I've seen it treat social media in a much more conservative, conventional way. They will think yeah. about what they're going to say if when they publish something, it's much more. Uh, and, and you know, if you, if you go back through the um, Obama tweets or any of the other presidents, they're all very um, strategically designed, yeah, to not be too controversial. Whereas, um, he was sitting there tapping away like he's like a Gen Y, you know, <laughs> it's just, it's just, um, yeah, I mean. What I find interesting actually is so how social media platforms have evolved in the last maybe five years, especially because I first remember Facebook when I was I was studying in the US like in 2006, so like at an American university. And that I think Facebook was maybe one, two years old at that point. It was still predominantly used um, as a social networking for universities. And I, I'm pretty sure I can remember people talking about it as the Facebook. And I was told that if you wanted to get invited to parties on campus, you had to <laughs> go to this thing. So it was very much a young person's platform. And now, really, I, I think it's much older. Like, it's it sort of predominantly seems to be, you know, maybe our parents' generation, our maybe us to some extent. Um, younger people, they might have a page, but they know when they're on there, they're kind of interacting with their Aunt Mavis as much as they are with like, you know, their mate from school. Whereas like they've got other things like, you know, Snapchat, especially maybe Instagram to a lesser extent. Um, I think they're probably expressing themselves more freely there. And then Twitter, um, there's a lot of bubbles within Twitter. So the way sort of I find it, there's journalists interacting with journalists and people who follow them and academics doing the same thing. And it's sort of plugging in Mm. the different bubbles and you can definitely tailor and experience yourself by just following people that you like or agree with if you want yeah to me Twitter's like like one big competition like to like of sides it's like people trying to score points with the most cutting 
attack or witty yeah. comments that you can possibly get. And it's like some game that no one's really signed up for, but they're all playing. And uh, yeah, look, and I think um, I've I, I don't really do much at all on Twitter, uh, in part because I, I for that reason I, I don't I, I think in order to get followers you've got to be uh, take a few risks, yeah, uh, and be interesting. But um, but you also invite a lot of hostility, and it's a very tricky environment to navigate. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's just it's it's not worth the time, really. No. And it's not, it's not a good experience. You don't, nobody, I can't, I don't think there's anyone on the planet who sits down and spends 10 minutes cycling through Twitter and walks away feeling like a better person at the end of it. No, I mean, let's, there's the whole <laughs> saying, um, you know, no one no one on their deathbed said, I wish I spent more time at the office. I can guarantee <laughs> you no one will die saying, I wish I spent more time on Twitter. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. <laughs> I love that episode of The Simpsons where Mr Burns on his deathbed um, pops his head up and says, I should have spent more time at work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, just let's looking at the time. Let's let's do the last one. Um, this a uh, more upbeat one. What was the most welcome surprise of 2020? So, like a surprise that actually was a good thing. Oh, gosh. I was going to say that it ended, but I mean that was that wasn't a surprise. <laughs> we knew it was going to end, and then we discovered that it ending didn't necessarily change all that much um well i'm gonna like this will be this is quite corny actually but i think what i found was like living in the present can can be quite good so i was sort of like always looking ahead to the next thing i'm doing on the horizon and planning and 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 travel is sort of wrapped up in that and we had some pretty big personal plans at the beginning of 2020 that like a lot of people got put on hold and I was really annoyed about that to start with. And then I kind of realized, well, I can't do anything about it. So I can't plan what we're doing, you know, in three months or even necessarily next month, but we can try and get the most out of what we're doing right now and really enjoy that. So mm. that was, that was a big part of 2020 for me. And it was quite good in that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, mine's a little bit similar, in that I, I, but I, I actually was more surprised that so much could still work and and function with lockdowns like yeah was you know and when because when this first started my first thought was oh gee this is gonna everything's gonna shut down the economy is gonna completely crash because yeah. everything is interconnected and nobody like it's just gonna be a ghost town but I was absolutely pleasantly surprised to see um how amazing that so many things could be run offline and yeah. still function and people still uh, were interested in, in, in working and, 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 and being productive. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a, a nice thing to know because in the worst case scenario, which, you know, having lived in Victoria, we were probably in what we probably experienced probably the harshest lockdown you could have uh, and that we will ever have um, unless, of course, we, we're hit with a virus that's a lot worse. But at least in our lifetime, at least with COVID around, it's, we've probably experienced the worst of it. And the worst of it wasn't terrible. At least I can say that. And I, I'm fortunate that I got to keep working. So I can't yeah, skip yeah. the, yeah, that goes without saying. Perspectives. Yeah, I, I get And I, I preface what I say with that as well. Yeah, yeah. It could have been a lot worse. It could have been much, much worse. And it certainly is in other parts of the world. But I, I'm, I'm actually amazed, like, so many things continue to work. You could... Wake up in the morning, your electricity is still on, you've still got internet, 
you still couldn't get food and you know everyone was worried they were rushing to the supermarkets and buying everything because they thought everything's just going to dry up but it yeah. didn't things the system was at least resilient enough like we we complain a lot about not being prepared and 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 being so vulnerable but it's pretty remarkable how quickly the whole world adapted being unprepared as well isn't it like there's so many things that they we're able to shift gears so quickly and generate a vaccine as quickly as even if it, it's not 100% effective, it's pretty remarkable that we could do that, something like that. Yeah, I think so. I'd probably throw in like the whole working from home thing, you know, for the people who did do that and, and even online learning. I know there's been some criticism of that, but in general, I think the way they sort of managed to flick a switch pretty quickly mm. um, has been really impressive. And like I've been as annoyed by endless zoom meetings and all that sort of thing as, as an next person but i think in general i mean i guess what what maybe was a bit of a surprise i mean i guess we knew the technology was there but we were underutilizing it um before and then we kind of realized it was there and we could take it up in a really big way that was probably a surprise to me yeah i did definitely and i think you know even to, to this podcast like we discussed doing this for a while and then in many ways, I think the lockdown actually forced yep. us to do it because we were like, we already just, we discovered, well, Zoom is not just convenient, but it also records and does all of this stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, so why not? Like, uh, and, and it's, and we don't have to sort of uh, fit in our schedules to meet up and, and set up like a little studio and talk. Yeah. Uh, we can do this and we can talk to our guests. They don't have to come in either. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, I, I'm actually a little bit surprised that I didn't I, I didn't take on board some of this technology a lot faster as well. Like in hindsight, I'm like, well, oh, there's so many things that I sat back and I remember talking about Zoom early 2000, 2020. Before, yeah. Before the pandemic, someone said, oh, why don't you Zoom me? And I was like, what's Zoom? Yeah. I, I didn't I know. I'd never used any of that online stuff. And, and they were yeah. absolutely astounded that I'd never heard of it before. Whereas I, I think they'd be even more astounded if I said it today. I had a similar situation. Like I think the limit, I'd been using it a little bit for some people overseas and that was about it. Um, and then I, at the beginning, my concern was because a lot of the work I do is kind of, built, you know, based on relationships with people and organisations. And I thought, I'm not sure that we'll be able to manage that in the same way, you know, on a virtual platform than we can by meeting people face to face, even flying to another city, you yep. know, to spend some time with them. And, I think because everybody was doing it, that made it really different. So it wasn't like you were suggesting, hey, let's do it this way rather than catch up face-to-face because they literally couldn't do that. Yeah. So that whole sort of, everyone was just on the same playing field in that way. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It was um, removing the, um, uh, because it was a necessity, you weren't basically implying, I can't be bothered to come in and meet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, you remove that as a possibility. But now I think it's really great in that people have this little option. So it's kind of like, oh, we could just have a chat online or, or yeah. catch up. And that, that's if, you know, you, you're not living in a part of the world that's got restrictions at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So um, that was a good wrap-up, I think, of two, 2020. It's It's kind of good in a way and also a little bit unfortunate that it was so overshadowed by one thing that that's uh that's basically what we focused our attention on but there was really no other way around it was there it was that's right it was always going to be um, about that yeah about the experience we had last year and and certainly 
we're, we're as you, to your point, we're still in it and we're still pushing yeah. through it. But we're, I still think we're better off than where we were in March last year, even though, uh, like, the, the path forward is a lot clearer. Well, not a lot clearer, but a little bit more optimistic than it was in March when it was certainly we were okay. getting down the barrel of something very uncertain and, and terrifying. Yeah, I think we have we have more answers than we did in March last year. I mean, we, we probably also have more questions, but we we know there was that period of great uncertainty, and there's still there's still a lot more we need to know. But yeah, I, I agree. I think we're in a better position now than we were then. So uh, next week we're catching up with Simon Moss, and yeah. we'll be discussing the future again. So we're gonna right. uh, we're gonna talk about this time. We're gonna talk about uh, goal setting in 2021 so what what enables someone to sit down make a goal actually stick to it yeah meet okay. you know, build in some new habits uh it's usually the time of the year everyone wants to do that are we, are we going to talk about new year's resolutions or can new year's resolutions be a positive thing to yes to set you up for goals yeah that's worth talking about i think Yes, yeah, indeed, we can talk about that. And, um, and well, hopefully uh, from Simon, we'll get some tips on how we can make some improvements and we can discuss whether whether you've got, well, whether both of us have come up with any New Year's resolutions. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome. All right, well, uh, let's say uh, sayonara to 2020. Um, yes. And, uh, yeah, we're almost into February, so um, <laughs> we'll, be, um, we'll be in December before we know it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, catch you later.